0: Welcome. Welcome to this episode of Woman to Woman podcast series. Our guest today is Susan Mazer. She's a PhD, the president, co-founder, and CEO of Healing Healthcare Systems Inc., the only evidence-based 24-hour relaxation channel for patient television. Susan is an acknowledged thought leader who has spent the past 29 years committed to improving the patient experience by writing and speaking about the power of healing environments, patient privacy, elder care, music, and nature as environmental design. Susan. Susan has a PhD in Cuban and Organizational Development from Fielding Graduate University, a Master's in Performing Practice from Stanford University, and a Bachelor of Music in Performance Art from Maine State University. Hi, Susan. Welcome to Woman to Woman Podcast. We are so excited to have you here with us today. And I'm so excited to be here today. So, you have done so much, so many different things, but I really wanna go all the way
1: back where it all started. So I was born in Detroit, Michigan, and my mother was first subjected to that, and it did, in many ways, define how I integrated into my peer group. But I found my place in high school, because in high school, I went to a extraordinary high school, Cass Technical High School, it was set up like a university. So you had to have a major. It had 22 curriculums. It was downtown. It was a citywide school. I wanted to be a doctor and they had a biochemical curriculum 15 science courses it terrified me although I really like science I when I went there I decided I was going to go into avocational music, which meant I only have have two music classes a semester. And they really set that up for prodigies, right? That you were a prodigy and you could go into this, but you could take all these other academic courses. Well, I went into this program and when I was auditioned, the woman who auditioned me said, you want to take harp? And I thought, sure, I need an elective. So that's literally how it happened. So I started taking harp lessons i was not very good i was in a class with six other harpist new students all of whom fell into the harp so much easier than i did and by the way it was highly integrated so most of the students at CAS. I think it was 50-50 African American and white, but in the harp class, by the time it all kind of fell out and I was in the harp ensemble, because that's like longevity, I stuck with it all three years I was in high school. I was the only uh, white student. These kids were so talented and so hip and loved me so much. I kind of found my place. When I graduated from high school, I went on to Wayne State University. That's in Detroit. So it was a commuter high school and I lived at home home. And as a graduation gift, my parents rented a harp for six months. I never had my own harp. I would go to school at, I'd be there by six in the morning, come home at six at night and all my spare moments were in the harp room practicing started college i switched teachers to liz ilku who was at the time principal harpist with the detroit symphony and i had a harp right first time well it was real clear that that was my life path and harps at that time this is 1964 were about 3500 which was the cost of a cadillac oh, it wow. was so much money now harps are between 18 and 100000 dollars There's nothing inexpensive about this instrument, but I'd really earned my way. So we bought the harp and I paid my parents back when I started gigging weddings, bra funerals, but I still wasn't that good. So my harp teacher, totally different style, treated me like I was a peer and just assumed if you're going to do this, you're going to do it perfectly. So I learned quite a bit from her. And when it came down to really standing up to the task, I would pull my harp from the living room into the kitchen and practice hours and hours and hours and hours in order to deliver to Liz. So I was, that was college. I graduated in four years. I'd gone to Italy right before my senior year and I didn't know what to do after I graduated. So I met a young man, Neil LaMonico Cellis in Italy and he was at Stanford. So he told me, oh, apply to Stanford. They have a lot of money. So I did. And they indeed gave me a full fellowship to go from my bachelor's to my PhD I went to Stanford, shocking. By the end of the first year, I finished my master's. Then I got a scholarship to go to Italy again. And then I went back to Detroit and taught. And in the meantime, I was still confused about, well, should I get a doctorate of musical art or should I get a PhD? Well, I had a bachelor of music. I did not want another degree in performance. I wanted to do my degree on the 19th century, which is when the concert grand harp really came into being. So I asked the department head, what who was my advisor, what is it I should do to prepare for this doctorate? Because it was very customized. That question wound up with my having to leave Stanford because the faculty... Decided there was no one with sufficient expertise in my field. Well, it was devastating to me because if you're a perfectionist and a goody two-shoes and a good student like I was, even though it was Stanford's fault, I felt I'd failed. In the meantime, when I was at Stanford, the harp teacher there got me my first gig. And it was playing harp in Menlo Park at Dinah Shack. The owner had bought a gold harp, needed somebody to play it. And I hated it until I realized I would become very depressed after a concert. If it was a concerto or something, I only got to play once and probably wouldn't play again for another 20 years. That depression letdown that comes after you achieve, right? It's the loss of striving was very devastating to me. So I thought, well, I'll be happy if I play every night. I wanted to a life where I performed every night. So I switched to jazz and moved to San Francisco. And I played continuously there for 12 years, got booked in Lake Tahoe, played there for 15 years. In the middle of that, I amplified the harp, which was heresy. And also, by the way, at that time, playing anything but classical music meant you weren't capable. That's where the harp community was, really narrow-minded, kind of like ballet and modern dance. I decided I was going to be brilliant at it. And I amplified the harp and worked at it for many years because they didn't really have the technology wasn't there so the harp could sound like a $200 cheap guitar. After about 20 years it got better and while I was in Tahoe I improved it greatly. So I did that. I played full-time for about 25 years. I met my husband in July 14th at three in the afternoon, 1984, because I'd recorded my first original album. This was the year my mother died. And I resigned from my last full-time performing position. So I was in that murky water of a career change. It was going to be music. but what was I going to do with it? So I started working with nurses because a harp student of mine kind of invited me into that arena. And I decided that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to teach nurses and put my music in a place where it would really be soulfully therapeutic for the listener, intentionally. 87 was the height of the New Age movement. So there was a lot of mythology being put out about music as healing. You play this certain song in the right key, it'll cure your liver. If you play it in this key, it'll help you stop smoking. If you play this tune, you can lose 50 pounds. I mean, it was really insanity. And I'm really not a new age lady. I'm pretty grounded. I had to, for myself, figure out, well, what is it that I'm really wanting to do? And through a a series of events, what I realized was that when you engage with music, whether you're alone or at a concert, and you're really, your soul is being played by the music. And as a young person, that happens more easily because everything is new. When we're older, it becomes a more rare event because we've had so much experience. And we also move into preference, which really blocks our ability to be spontaneously engaged. By this time, sidebar, this other parallel universe going on, I was an acute bulimic. My mother was morbidly obese. I was very close to her. I gained a lot of weight in college. I assumed that was my life, that I was just going to be this big person. Then I lost a lot of weight using every trick that every woman knows exists, you know, injections, pills, strict dieting. I'd lost a lot of weight, but the only way to keep it off um, was to purge because I was a compulsive overeater. And it's like being a drunk. And if you had to drink, but you had a pill, that you could take and no one would know you're drunk and you're a high achieving addict, that's what the bulimia was for me. I lived with that for about 17 years, finally bottomed out with it and joined a 12 step program, which I'm still living. And for anyone who's listening to this, the majority of bulimics are women and the pressure on us physically socially to have a certain look, no matter what they're trying to do is still unbearable and unreasonable. And it's especially unreasonable because if you have a picture in your mind of what you should look like, there's no forgiveness for menopause, aging, surgery, cancer, There is no leeway. So the judgment on your body is kind of this consistent whip that on a daily basis, you look at yourself, you measure yourself against an unreasonable standard. And that's what I was doing. So in the 12-step program, when I first joined, I didn't understand what any of it had to do with my insatiable craving to eat. It was an insatiable hunger. After four years and a lot of pain and hundreds of meetings, I finally realized I had this moment, which the 12 steps promise, realized that there was nothing wrong with me, that the idea that I was defective was a myth perpetuated in my family culture and that I was not my weight. I needed to move ahead and really surrender to a higher power, whether it was my music or I just had to get that I couldn't do this. So I've been in recovery 38 years. I am my normal weight, which I've sustained for a very long time. However, I will tell you that I'm 40 pounds heavier than I was when I was at my sickest. And I think about that and think about how I look. It's really an insanity. But that played into my music. That played in that recovery forced me to play music not for my ego or for success, any kind of external satisfaction, fame. I had to play it in service to others. So I, I wrote workshops for in drug abuse prevention and also for nurses that focused on designing a therapeutic environment at the bedside and focusing on the lived experience of the patient, which I do to this day. I think that was the most that was the largest change for me and it still is in three months i will be 75 and being 75 i'm comfortable in my own skin i've played the harp for 60 years we served my husband at dallas and i we've been married 37 years, and we started a company together and produced the Care Channel, which is a 24-hour environmental relaxation channel, follows the day-night cycle, to be the cornerstone of a therapeutic space for patients or anyone who's in distress in June 30 years we've been doing it. So it started out with just Dallas and I, our third bedroom. He did all the video for 18 years. We now have 20 employees. The channel is now in HD. It's in over a thousand hospitals. Congratulations. Like that's such an achievement. And thing
0: that really strikes me, you mentioned... Your student channeled you into this with nurses. Right. The fact that you acknowledge that and the fact that you were so open-minded.
1: We all have talents we know, and many, many we don't know. So historically, I'm a workbook person. I think I made my first workbook in high school. So putting together a workbook and putting together a learning process, I think I've been doing it my whole life. I don't fight many things. My mom. She was very heart driven.
0: Do you think she has had a lot of influence in how your life got shaped and who you are today?
1: Oh, without question. She died very suddenly, six months after she retired. There were four or 500 people at her funeral. And as people went through the line to greet us and express their condolences, teachers came up and said, your mom saved my career. Your mother saved my job. Your mother gave me hope. I think She's been gone almost 39 years, but easily for the first 25, when I'd go back to Detroit, I'd meet someone who'd say, oh my goodness, B. Mazur was just this amazing woman. And she was compassionate and straightforward she really wanted teachers to be able to teach. So she was teaching by the time I was 10 or 11. She weighed probably 260 pounds, short, 5'3". She showed up at picket line, she ran for office. She was an executive, executive board of the Detroit Federation of Teachers in spite of being that heavy. Think about the battles she had to fight with herself to show up and be who she was be present. And everyone got past all that. I wish she was here so I could tell her how very much I admire her and appreciate her. I can't tell you. So her work is in the Walter Ruther Library in Detroit. Oh, wow. Which holds all the labor documents for the early labor movement.
0: So did you have any other influences on your life apart from your mother or any mentors that you seeked along the way?
1: You know, at this age, I've had many. My harp teacher, who really wasn't a really good teacher, but she was an amazing role model. To this day, she's now 93 and frail, and I talked to her often. So she was 37 when I met her. She went through terrible health issues and professional issues. To this day, she was the most inspiring harpist to me. My second year of studying with her, she had encephalitis, meningitis. So she collapsed had to relearn how to play. So she didn't play for a year. And then in her second year, maybe it was her first year, they needed two harp to do WC um, some of the WC works like La Mer and... Uh, Ravel's works Need Two Harps, I got to do that second harp. It was bittersweet because she was in agony over not being able to play, but I was so thrilled to play. So yeah, she was a big influence for me. Well, when I got into healthcare, Leland Kaiser, who's a healthcare futurist who died maybe three years ago, he knew immediately what we were doing about creating a healing environment. Moving out of the fact that music was a content piece like entertainment, into music, creating a context, a context in which people could heal. It took so long to start this company. There wasn't any precedent. No one thought hospital paid for it. It was every reason why we shouldn't have succeeded. But I wasn't listening to any of that. So once I'd call him once in a while, just so he could remind me that, yes, it's real and it will happen. And one time I said, well, how long will this take? He said, five years, five years it was till we got really grounded in more than one hospital.
0: So what really inspired you to Think of something that wasn't, you know, normal, like nobody else was doing it. And there were so many obstacles. What, what really inspired you and kept you going? I know he said five years, but even five years is a very long time.
1: There was such a dramatic need for it. We'd started working with a local hospital and I created a music in residence program. And we would go in and play for up to eight hours on one unit of the hospital. So we'd go over more than one nursing shift, more than one meal, It would take one to two hours to get past the entertainment effect. And it changed everything in that unit. So we were on an oncology floor and we started playing and patients that were unwilling to get out of their room requested to come out. Patients who were unengaged sent requests up. They wanted to hear something. And the nurse looked at us and said, this is great, but how do I help these patients at three in the morning? Because when a musician plays live, it's episodic, like one hour. It's episodic. I felt very strongly that a healing environment is an obligation of the hospital. So the music had to be available according to the patient schedule, not the musician's schedule or the hospital. That's what inspired us to do a 24-hour channel.
0: Do you think along the way you had more hurdles because you were a woman trying to chart your way through this, or do you think that played no role?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. I was thinking about that. I became an easy target. We were with one record company that all I had to do was walk in the room and the owner of the record company would turn red. He was so angry at me for nothing. But I was the one. I took business law, contract law, because we had kind of engaged with record companies and very disastrous contracts. And I wasn't going to have that happen again. So I wasn't easy to deal with. I wasn't a surrendered, just just publish my music. I'll bow down to you three times a day. And I didn't do that. So he'd get angry. We're with another a healthcare organization, the three people most involves that i was the problem but i don't think it was about my being a woman i think it was about my being assertive clear and really affecting real clean relationships so let's look at how how when i was a young harpist i got hit on a lot and of course i started playing full-time i was still in my early 20s i was too naive to know whether The harp is the only instrument where it's in your favor to be a woman because the male harpists who tend to be the best historically, it wasn't in their favor to be a man because everybody sees the harp as a feminine instrument, but it's gender free. It's just wooden gut strings. As a woman for me was learning how to tell the truth fearlessly in professional and personal relationship was learning how to be very clear and straightforward, especially as a CEO and owner, because I've had employees now for 25 years and not be bossy, not be kind of overbearing, to be direct, to not be intimidated if someone gets upset. They have a right to be upset. It doesn't mean it's my problem. To learn how to identify where my responsibilities and who I am stop and where the responsibilities and personhood of someone else start. Tremendous amount of work to get, even to know how to talk about it. Expectations are set up by behavior, what we yeah. tolerate, what we don't tolerate. Well, everybody observes everybody to figure out how to survive. I'm much more comfortable now than I was when we started the company. I never have really played the boss card, laid it down, say, well, you want this and I want this, I win. Never have either my husband or I as owners done that because what we really want is a company of leaders, a company just like like an orchestra. So in an orchestra, there is an assumption, musician to musician, You'll know your part, you'll play in tune, you'll adhere to the etiquette of being a musician. So right. that's how we hired, that we assumed who we hired should know their part, show up on time, be competent, do whatever it takes to succeed, play perfectly or play harmoniously. And sometimes we were totally wrong that the people we hired, we made a mistake, felt so bad about it that it took us too long to fire. You know, I think that the Line is hire slowly, fire fast. Yep, (laughs) that's it, yep. But I'm more comfortable now understanding what that is, and we've learned to hire better.
0: So you mentioned something very interesting,
1: you know, behaviors.
0: Mm -hmm. Are there certain behaviors that you've noticed in all of your years where I think women kind of have certain kinds of behaviors that really hold us back.
1: Everyone in my company is well-paid. They have been fearless about asking for more money if they feel they need it or want it. I've never wanted to hire somebody who was either a mouse or a bitch. You know, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to hire someone who was strong, competent, knew their skills, and group, I think that we all have our personal work to do, to really get honest with ourselves about what our motivation is, what we're surrendering to, because we're all surrendering to something, and learn how to be honest. Any closing comments from our listeners? You have to find your own mission. You have to find what matters to you. The bottom line of what are you willing to do every single day and with whom are you gonna do it? So instead of looking for a job, according to the pay only, which I think now is a myth, I don't think people seek jobs out for salary alone, ask yourself, In the end, what have I done? Every day when I get up, is it worth getting up for? Do I feel good about, am I able to express my own mission in the work I'm doing? Are the people around me peers? Can I learn from them? And it isn't about even being politically aligned, it's about being in a dialogue where everybody is a learner. Those questions, looking for a job, I don't think ever have been put out. If you're gonna look for a career, first of all, look at your values. Second of all, look at how you wanna spend every day. Some people love being in front of the computer inside every day. Some people can't stand it. Some people wanna be around people all the time. Some people can't stand it. Do you wanna be someplace where you job hop, like you'll be here for three years and then look for another job? Or do you wanna be someplace where you really can lay down roots and flourish where the company grows and you grow and you really have a stake in it about acting as an entrepreneur in every gig Then in every job you fully represent yourself mm-hmm. even if you think you're representing the company it winds up being yours we have to produce and direct the movie we create on a daily basis in our own lives thank you so much susan we really appreciate the time and this was such a nice conversation you're welcome anytime i'm happy to Have this conversation again i'm very interested in what you're doing and your goal for woman to woman i'm interested in the questions that come to you and i'm totally available you you know
0: i'm going to take you up on that offer
1: (laughs) thank you you're welcome to give my personal email if someone wants to contact me and communicate thank you so much